So today's teaching is going to be a little bit different. We've been walking through uh, John's gospel, and uh, uh, John is going to say again and again, this is an eyewitness account. This is, this is an account like, it, like it's firsthand. And in chapters 18 and 19, where we'll be today, we're, we're going to do something just a little bit different. Um, I just want to walk through the teaching. Really, the text changes. Uh, up to chapter 18 and 19, uh, John is still sharing with us the teachings of Jesus. It's teaching after teaching after teaching. But really, the gears shift in chapter 18. It becomes more, more narrative. It becomes uh, almost like a novel. John, who is a firsthand witness of this whole thing, who sees it firsthand, he walks through the scenes from the garden to the praetorium to the foot of the cross and all the way to the tomb. And as John tells the story, he invites us along. The goal of his writing, the goal of writing this down is so that you would see the events of Jesus' life through your own eyes. So we're going to do a couple of things to help you uh, uh, feel this experience, right? So it's filled with sights and sounds. The first thing I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to put a, a background track behind our teaching today. So this is something we've never done before. Um, but there is a piece of music, uh, the style of music is called an oratio, and it's actually written by Beethoven. Um, and it is 50 minutes long, so it'll cover about half my teaching today. Um, <laughs> but Beethoven wrote this oratio. An oratio like, uh, is different from an opera where an opera would be acted out. An oratio is just a concert. So you're going to hear, in the background of today's teaching, you're going to hear an orchestra, you're going to hear a choir, and you may even hear some soloists. And if, you can, uh, if you're musically gifted enough to pick out the tenor, the tenor is the voice of Jesus. And Beethoven wrote this oratio with one scene of Scripture in mind. It's called Christ in the Garden. So go ahead and start that, Stephen, and let's, uh, I'll let you get a taste of it, let you sample it for yourself, because today's teaching deserves some music with it. You hear the majestic horns. Beethoven's music, hopefully, is going to take you into the garden with him, and that's where our story begins. He wants you to hear the anguish and the turmoil of this important moment in Christ's life. It's incredibly personal and dramatic. The first five minutes is just like this, it's all horns, but then you'll begin to hear, like I said, you'll hear some singers, some chorus, some vocalists jump in. All right, so can you handle this in the background? The next thing I want to do is I want to, I want to fill your, your eyes with images. And I'm going to take uh, some paintings from the artist Caravaggio. Uh, it's a, a guy that I love to use as an artwork, a 19th century artist. Uh, and the first painting I want to share with you today, and I'm just going to use these paintings as we walk through the text together. Go ahead, Stephen, put that first one up. This painting is called The Taking of Christ. Uh, in fact, Stephen, if you want... Pull those faders down. Let's lower the lights just a little. Oh, great. Now I'm playing classical music and I lowered the lights. Stay with me here. <laughs> Stay with me here. So here you see Christ in the garden. Who is the one leaning in closest 
Judas. The one behind, directly behind Jesus is uh, John, our author, fleeing from the scene. The one holding a lantern who is leaning kind of in, that's supposed to be Peter. We're gonna see him in our story in just a minute. But uh, just an interesting side note, uh, Caravaggio, he does a self-portrait of himself in this painting and he paints himself as Peter. So you actually see the artist in the artwork. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He crosses the Kidron Valley to get there and he enters a grove of olive trees. Judas leads a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards with torches, lanterns, and weapons to arrest Jesus. It says in scripture that it was a contingent or a cohort. A cohort is as many as 600 men, but no fewer than 200. There were stationed there to prevent riots and Judas leads likely hundreds of men looking for trouble, armed to the teeth to arrest Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? It says in verse four of chapter 18 that Jesus stepped forward to meet them. Jesus steps up. He didn't come all this way to shrink from the task God had given him. Maybe there's a lesson there for you and me. Jesus asked this huge cohort of men, who are you looking for? And they replied, Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus uh, reciting the ancient words of the burning bush that Moses spoke to, Jesus says, I am. And as Jesus spoke those words, I am, meaning the great I am, they all, hundreds of men armed to the teeth, drew back and fell to the ground. The men don't fall before Jesus of Nazareth, they fall before the great I am. Jesus isn't hiding anymore. The truth of who he is is coming out. Still the men rise and arrest Jesus and take him to the high priest. They take him to Annas' house and Annas actually is not the high priest at the time, he was the high priest. His son-in-law Caiaphas is the high priest and everything about this next scene is wrong. The way of Jewish law to accuse someone is to hold a public assembly and to bring witnesses to offer testimony on both sides. And so the idea that the high priest or the ex-high priest would take a prisoner to his own house was completely unorthodox and in, at least in Jewish law, completely illegal. And while they question and challenge Jesus and his claims, I'll show you the second image. It's called um, Peter's denial. John says that both he and Peter, they come into the courtyard of the house. And while Jesus is being questioned and although Peter has said, I would die for you, I would fight to the tooth for you, I would never deny you. You know what happens, right? Three times Peter is confronted and three times Peter denies even knowing Jesus. Well, the Jews are too good to, have a, uh, to kill someone on their own, so they decide to have Pilate do it for them. The next image is a courtroom scene. They take Jesus before Pilate, Pilate is the Roman gover governor. And really what you need to know about Pilate is that Pilate is brutal and bloodthirsty. 
uh, his atrocities against the Jews were infamous. In Luke, in chapter 13, it says uh, that Pilate murders people. He murders specifically Jews as they are making their offerings at the temple. And if you want to kill a Jew, you couldn't find a better person to do the job. Uh, I'll put it this way. Hitler probably admired Pilate. And Pilate receives Jesus and he begins to question Jesus. And he asks, are you the king of the Jews? You see, because a king would be a threat to Rome. And Jesus replied, look, is this really your question? Is this something you're really worried about? Or is there someone else like planning these questions in you? Is there someone else pulling your chain? Jesus says, you, you say that I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. Remember what Jesus said earlier in John, I am the way, the life, and the truth. Pilate, the bloodthirsty killer of Jews, says that he's not guilty of any crime. And he tries to release Jesus, but the crowd calls out instead for a man named Barabbas, a known revolutionary, a real threat to Rome. They refuse Jesus and cry out for Barabbas. And so Pilate draws Jesus in again and says, you know, as, as a half measure, I'll have him flogged. This painting's called The Flagellation of Christ. I'll have him flogged. And so they beat him with lead-tipped whips. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Stephen, you can go ahead and go to that next image. They drape in mockery a purple robe around his shoulders. Pilate thinks, surely this is enough. I've had him punished. I've had him beaten. Surely this is enough. I'm going to bring him out to them again. And he says, even Pilate says, understand clearly that I find him not guilty. The leading priests and temple guards shout out, crucify him. Pilate says, look, take, take him for yourself. You crucify him. I find him not guilty. And that's when the Jewish leaders play their trump card. They claim that Jesus should die because he called himself the son of God. And this makes Pilate, scripture says, this frightens Pilate. It makes him afraid because Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. And anyone claiming to be God might threaten this, the cause of Rome, might threaten Caesar. And any threat to Rome must be taken seriously. And so Pilate asked a really curious question of Jesus. He asked Jesus, where are you from? Now, everyone knew where Jesus was from, right? He was the Nazarene. He was, he was born in Bethlehem. But when Pilate says, where are you from? He doesn't mean a birthplace. He, he means, are you from heaven or are you from earth? You see, Pilate is superstitious. The activity of gods on earth was a common belief. And when Pilate says, where are you from? He's asking, are you a man or are you something else? This is the right question to ask of the Son of God. But Jesus doesn't answer. But we know the answer, don't we? Where is Jesus from? In chapter 1 of John, he says, he is from the beginning. Again, Pilate tries to release him. And Jewish leaders threaten to call him no friend. If you, they say, if you release him, we'll call you no friend of Caesar. 
basically they 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 threaten his political career basically they say if you release him we'll we'll spread the word that that you're not a follower of caesar and we won't vote for you again you'll you'll be run out of office and so pilate brings jesus out to them again and famously in verse 14 of chapter 19 he says look here is your king. That's the next picture. That's the next painting by Caravaggio. It's called the Essay Homo. It's, it means behold the man. Pilate stations Jesus before them. And the Jews reply, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate says, are you sure you want me to crucify your king? And the Jewish leadership say, we have no king but Caesar. Did the Jewish leaders really just say that? And so Pilate, in verse 13 of chapter 19, it says that he takes, he's in the praetorium, this place of judgment, and he takes the judgment seat. This is, this is an important moment. It's the moment where the judge sits behind the, the, the big seat of judgment. It, 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 it's, this means this is no longer a discourse. It's no longer a discussion. Pilate sits in a position of authority and turns Jesus over them to be crucified. It's so important to just pause here for a minute and ask, who are the ones that really want Jesus dead? Who is the one that is trying to set him free? The corrupt murderer Hitler's role model wants to set him free, and the good country church folk want his blood. It's an ultimate irony in John's gospel and a warning for all of us. Because who is really guilty? Who deserves to sit in the seat of judgment? Who is the sinner? Who deserves to be punished? Jesus, Jesus isn't the guilty one. We are. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in this moment. He says, in an incomprehensible reversal of all righteous and pious thinking, God declares himself guilty to the world and thereby extinguishes the guilt of the world. God wants to be guilty for our guilt and takes upon himself the punishment and suffering that this guilt brought to us. God stands in for the godless. Love stands in for hate. The Holy One for the sinner. Now there is no more reality, no more world that is not reconciled with God and in peace. This is what God did in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. In the human court and in the heavenly court, God stands in for us, for me, and for you. He takes our guilt on himself. So Jesus is turned over to be crucified. None of the gospels dwell on the details of the crucifixion. What happened was was pretty well-known fact. It was a very public form of torture. It was designed to prolong pain as much as possible. Sometimes it would take uh, uh, men who were crucified even days to die. It was used to really make, it was supposed to be this public spectacle, used to make an example of someone. And it was horrific. Let me show you a video of what it looked like on the cross. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, 
and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Exodus. God has heard the cry of his people enslaved in Egypt and he sends Moses to release the people, to set the captives free. And with that, uh, with Moses comes this series of plagues. Maybe you've seen the movie. And in these plagues, the final, the penultimate plague is what? Do you remember? 
It's the death of the firstborn. But there was a way to avoid it, right? There was a way to preserve your firstborn's life. And that was to sacrifice a lamb. This lamb had to be uh, an unbroken body, a pure lamb, free of defect. And when you sacrifice the lamb, you would draw everyone into your house and you would take a hyssop branch and you would dip it in the blood of the lamb and you would go outside of your home and you would take the blood of that lamb and you would wipe it over the doorpost of your house. Generally, written on the doorpost of the house were the names of the people who lived in that house. So that literally, the names of the people who lived there were washed in the blood. John shows us this picture of Jesus. Jesus, the unbroken, on the day of preparation, even on the cross, he's offered a hyssop branch, right? We are supposed to see in Jesus this Passover lamb, one life given for many. More than 900 first century tombs, just like the one John describes, have been discovered by archaeologists. Imagine that. 900 in the, around the area of Jerusalem. More than 100 of them have a design with a rolling stone. I love that John includes that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus show up. They are secret disciples, secret followers of Jesus who request his body and receive permission. And they bury him like a king. Remember how much, how, how much did the spices weigh that they were going to bury him with? Remember? About 75 pounds of perfume and spices and ointment were brought to bury Jesus. That's what you would bring for a king. And they lay him in a fresh tomb, unfamiliar with death. This last painting by Caravaggio is called The Entombment of Christ. And it's the one I'm gonna leave you with. As 19, chapter 19 of John ends, we are left waiting and wondering. We're left restless and unsure. We're uncertain of what will happen next. Because if this is your story and my story, it would end right here, right? But this is the moment that heaven and earth hold their breath. John says at the very end of chapter 19, he says, this report is from an eyewitness. He speaks the truth so that you can also believe. Jesus invites you to see it through, your, through his eyes. Have you? Jesus really did die, he says. I saw it myself. And as we enter into this time of communion, I want you to consider again this story. A story worth telling. Maybe share it and gather around it with your your family this week. Even in a few moments as you take the body and blood, as you remember the anguish and the sacrifice of Jesus, as you sit in stillness and wait, ask yourself, what do you believe? 
What do you believe? Was Jesus just a man? Or was he the son of God? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for John's witness so that we would, would see for ourselves, so that we would come to see for ourselves. Father God, as we enter into this time of communion, as we remember your son's body and broken for us and, and, and his blood poured out for us, Father God, let us, uh, let us come face to face again with that question. What do we believe? The purpose of John's gospel is so that we would believe. Like, he's given us all these details so that we would believe, but, but there's no force in that, and there's, uh, there's no guilt or somehow coercion. God, it's, it's all invitation, and so God, help us in this space, in this moment again, to ask that question, what do we really believe? And let the fruits of our belief be acted out in a manner that honors you. God, we know that you loved us so much that you gave your one and only son so that those who believe in him would not perish but have life and not just any kind of life, the best kind. So Father God, as we engage and enter into this story again, I pray that maybe there are those who are struggling with belief. I pray that they would, they would come to see for themselves. I pray that they would come to see the truth of your son, Jesus Christ. Believe in him have life. Bless us now, Father God, as we enter into this time of communion, this time of remembrance, this time of belief. And everyone together says, amen. I invite you to enjoy communion together.